Hello folks, welcome to Josh's Worst Nightmare Oddcast, presented by Denver Horror Collective. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg, surveying the dark landscape of biological horror fiction. For this episode, we're being visited by Ilana Gomel. Ilana Gomel was born in a country that no longer exists and has lived in many others that may or may not be on the road to extinction. She currently resides in California. She is an academic with a long list of books and articles specializing in science fiction, Victorian literature, and serial killers. She is also a fiction writer who has published more than 100 short stories, several novellas, and four novels. Her story, Where the Streets Have No Name, was the winner of the 2020 Gravity Award, and her story, Mind 7, is included in the Best Horror of the Year 13, edited by Ellen Datlow. Welcome to my nightmare, Ilana. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Glad to be sharing your nightmare. Very good. It's good to have company. Well, so I know Ilana through Denver Horror Collective, of which I am a co-founding member. She had a short story in our second anthology, Consumed Tales Inspired by the Wendigo. And then I brought her back for a recent one that I edited, The Jewish Book of Horror. She's also a Denver Horror Collective member. So on Josh's Worst Nightmare, as everyone knows, my millions of listeners all know this, I invite on horror writers to talk about an aspect of biological horror, which I define as the definition of biology, living creatures and vital processes relevant to their writing in some way, shape or form. This episode, we've got an interesting topic. It's evolutionary horror. What in the world is evolutionary horror, Ilana? Okay. So uh, I'm wearing two hats, both as a fiction writer and as an academic. So I will start wearing my first hat as an academic just to give a little background and then I'll move on to my um, fiction writing. So um, in 1859, um, Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species. I claim this was the most influential book in world history because its consequences are incalculable and we're still living, you know, in the aftermath of the Darwinian revolution. But most people don't really understand what this revolution was all about. They think, oh, it was about the Bible, about Christianity. No, the real horror and the real shock of Darwin was the realization of what is sometimes called deep time. That is to say how long history is how tiny proportion of this history is what we humans in our arrogance call history. Um, Darwin was not the first one to talk about deep time. There were people before him, Charles Lyle in uh, 1830, but he brought it to the, um, uh, to the attention of the world just Try to imagine the shock of people who used to believe that the entire history was 6,000 years and it was all about us, it was all about human beings. And suddenly you realize there have been billions, millions first, and then billions of years before us, and all kinds of living creatures lived during this time, and this time had no interest in us. Evolution is not progressive. People sometimes think, oh, evolution is like, you know, this train track. 
and it goes in one direction and it ends with us. No, it doesn't end with us. We are an accident. We're a random event. We could have not existed. Humanity as a whole, our species could not have existed. And so you have a kind of subgenre of uh, horror slash science fiction, which started with H.G. Um, Wells, obviously, like everything starts with H.G. Wells. And it's not um, his most famous novel, The War of the World. It's his first novel, The Time Machine, which projects this line of evolution, the idea of deep time into the future and creates a future in which humanity no longer exists. There are creatures that are our uh, descendants that kind of look like us, but they're not human. They have no mind, they have no self-awareness. They just exist. And there is no reason why, simply because time does what time does. So the ultimate monster in evolutionary horror is not like dinosaurs, T-Rex, or whatever it is. Those are just masks, representations or symbols of the real monster, which is time. Time that will sweep us away just as time has brought into being for, again, for no particular reason, just happen, time will sweep us away. So, um, and this is what evolutionary horror is all about. It's about the meaninglessness of evolution and the incredible depths of time. Um, and as I said, there, are, there is a whole subgenre. It starts with the time machine, and then you have Arthur Conan Doyle with The Lost World, which many people know because it has been made into a number of movies, all of them bad. Um, but the whole idea of this evolutionary, and I can talk more about the subgenre itself and give you more examples. You know, I wrote books about it. But um, the whole point of the subgenre is that no matter how many dinosaurs or any other kind of prehistoric creatures you have, the real monster is time. And what's interesting is that subgenre has become really popular recently. I mean, it's a very long one. It goes back to the time machine was published in 1895. Um, but, and it, it never, it actually has never went out of fashion. You have, um, Pelucidar, which is a novel by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who also wrote Tarzan. But the thing is, it became really, um, went back into fashion like about 10 years ago. I can give you like a list of hundreds of novels, literally published um, in the subgenre with dinosaurs or again, prehistoric creatures of some kind. Unfortunately, it's almost always dinosaurs, even though there are many more interesting prehistoric creatures, um, somehow colliding with our contemporary civilization and, and wreaking havoc on us. Um, one of my novels, uh, The Cryptids, is sort of like this. Um, it's an invasion from a different evolutionary timeline, not from the past, but from parallel evolutionary timeline. But in my own novel, I try to make it explicit that it's not simply about various monsters, even though I love monsters, you know, I love, but it really is about ultimately the ultimate question of what are we, how did we come to be here? And the answers that Darwinism provides to this question um, are very troubling for most people because the answer is 
which just happened to be here for no particular reason and were going to be gone away in some time in the future. Yeah, it's such a vast topic, of course, all of time, obviously, but it does nestle perfectly into horror, science fiction, that whole realm. I think of, I can't help but think of Lovecraft in a certain way, the cosmic horror, the idea of we're only here for this brief span of time. We think we're so important, but it's the old gods that are returning. So in a sense, that's symbolic of that. No, we're just a blip. There are things that are far vaster than us, and we're going to be swallowed up eventually. So would you say that some of Lovecraft's cosmic horror and then the whole body of cosmic horror after might fit into this a little bit? Yes, a little bit. It intersects with this. I mean, Lovecraft lived in the 1920s when those um, the aftershocks of the Darwinian Revolution were very much you know, present. And Lovecraft was interested in biology, had some problematic ideas about biology. But regardless, yes and no, because um, the old gods of Lovecraft have no, they're inimical, they're hostile to humanity, and they have no particular connection with us. Even though in some histories you have this idea of hybridization, right? Uh, of, you know, all those monsters interbreeding with human beings. So like um, in, in the time machine, there is this idea of human becoming non-human, breeding away from humanity. So in this sense, yes, Lovecraft fits into this uh, whole, you know, um, evolutionary horror, but he is standing a little bit aside from it because to be honest, he didn't really understand biology and his racist views are you know, connected to that. H.G. Um, Wells, for example, was a biologist. I mean, he was a scientist himself, so he knew what he was writing about. And the thing in, in the time machine is that those creatures are us, they're our children. They're not, you know, coming from some hole in the sky. They are our children and yet they're monstrous and so much unlike us. Um, the same thing in say Conan Doyle, The Lost World, where they meet those prehistoric, um, whatever he calls them, ape men. Um, today would call them hominids or hominids. Again, they are us. You know, they're our ancestors, and yet they're monsters. So again, in what I try to do in my novel, The Cryptids, is to show, to show like creatures who look like us, actually, um, and even beautiful in some way, but they're not, they're not human. They're not human in, in a very profound way. They have no self-awareness. So speaking of time, it's been a while since I read The Time Machine. Does that take place in the future or the past? It takes place in the future. Right. And yeah, and so the time traveler, we have no name, just the time traveler, he goes into the future. And what he finds, he finds two species. So humanity has evolved or devolved into two different species who prey on each other. One species basically breeds the other one as meat animals. And both species have no mind. I mean, they look human, kind of, but both of them are just like mindless animals. And this is the horror of it. And most people don't even, a lot of time, like if you look at um, a screen, you know, movies based on the time machine, they don't realize what the true horror is. 
and it is those creatures are not human they look like human but they're not right yeah the dichotomy the splitting of the shadow and the light what was it the mm -hmm. the eloy and the uh, the morlocks and the right. morlocks so morlocks. the morlocks live but again like in many movies the eloy look like all those you know like nice looking uh, people <laughs> living whatever wearing you know abbreviated costumes stuff like that that's total nonsense because in the book the eloy they do look nice they look beautiful but they're not human they're just animals Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. But that's an example of something time swallowing us in the future, whereas some of those other examples stuff in the past. So we're sort of stuck in the middle. And the idea of time eating us up, I, I think that is, I don't want to say it is the all encompassing horror, but it seems like from my studies, which do fall into the scientific realm, I've been a science writer and a fiction writer, and I blend those elements. I think that's what brought my interest in what I'm calling biological horror, but the idea that basically humans are obsessed with immortality. And I believe that that's a lot of the reason why we're destructive to one another, destructive to the planet. We're obsessed with, we, we have to, you know, hoard, we get, we got to get status. We got to hoard. We've got to provide for our children. Nothing wrong with having progeny, but it's that obsession of like, I got to continue my genetic line. It's so important. And then we find out, yeah, guess what? Um, the sun's going to explode anyway. So it's all in vain if we have that perspective, which humans don't like to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody likes to hear that, which is why um, H. Wells, when he wrote his masterpieces of evolutionary time, was not very popular. It's when he started, you know, getting into politics and writing utopias, dystopias, whatever, people started liking him. Because a utopia or a dystopia, for that matter, is a way to give meaning to time. It's like time has a, a narrative, a plot, a progression story. It goes to, you know, um, to heaven or hell, but it goes somewhere. But in fact, it just goes nowhere. Um, and I agree about immortality. It definitely is a really strong undercurrent in all of this. Uh, that, you know, as the Bible says, it's all vanity, you know, it's all in vain. But in evolutionary horror, in addition, there is another issue, which is, you know, we like to think that there is this uh, line dividing us from animals. We are self-aware animals are not, we're intelligent animals are not, we're this and animals are not. Guess what? You know, if you go back in time enough, your great, great, whatever parent was an animal. And the thing is, there is no dividing line. It's not like you have, you know, barrier and somebody jumped over a barrier and on the other side of it, you have like you and I. It's not like this. It goes by, um, by like minute changes, real small additions. And this continuity, evolutionary continuity, is another aspect of evolutionary horror because in horror you meet a monster and you don't know what it is. Is it a monster? Is it human? And then you realize it's both. Just yeah. as we, all of us, are both human and animals. That's been hugely influential to me. Basically, since I was a teenager, I would think all the time about we've evolved from apes. And then when I was a little older, I would eat mushrooms and I would just the whole time think about human evolution, how like, oh, wait, I'm in the forest. I'm supposed to be here, even though obviously we're a bit more 
complex our brains are than apes, but yeah, we are apes. And that's the way that I can, anytime something's going on in the world, I'm like, how could people do this? Or even how could I do this? Like, I'm really just a sophisticated ape. We're all just sophisticated apes in clothing. We're nicely groomed. We're driving, we're apes driving in cars, you know, and I, and I, you know, we're not apes. We're, you know, the common ancestor and stuff like that. But yeah, the idea that we're not these pure angel creatures that I guess uh, elements of religion have, have given us. And, and frankly, every, I think every, almost every culture has a belief of the human being sort of special, although some like Native American cultures believe that it's more a part of nature and whatnot. But ha talking about this aspect in, in horror, have you read or seen the movie Altered States? Yes. Okay, yes. so Patty oh, Chayefsky. Yeah. That was one, that's one of my favorite books and the movie, they're, they're pretty, they're pretty interchangeable. Um, it's, it's horror sci-fi. So I don't want to give away the plot, but the plot is already given away in the thing. It's basically a guy who does, he's doing exploration internally with, uh, isolation tanks and then he takes mushrooms and then he sort of devolves into basically a hominid creature. And it's like, it's awesome. Um, so that I think is a, a great example of exploring what, that might be in, in the baser impulses and what, and maybe the differences, maybe the differences between hominids and humans, because there are some. Oh, no, totally. Uh, I agree. And all states, I never thought about it in this context, but you're absolutely right. I love this movie. Um, but thing is, we're kind of worse than apes because human beings are capable of a kind of violence that no animal is capable of. Mm -hmm. So yes, we're special in, in many interesting ways. It doesn't necessarily mean we're better or we might be worse in some, you know, in some sense. Right. But um, this idea of the humanity devolving or evolving or even an individual in devolving into an animal uh, it's so ubiquitous in horror. You have like examples going back to the nineteenth um, century. You know the way people are writing about it. Um, even in uh, Jekyll and Hyde, you know, by Stevenson, um, there is an implication that Jekyll is a sort of ape-like creature. Uh, sorry, Hyde, the uh, you know the evil side of Jekyll. And what happens is that Jekyll devolves into into this. Uh, evolutionary, uh, I think Stevenson calls it evolutionary slime. So we all have evolutionary slime inside of us, of us, and sometimes it just comes out. But as I said, very often I, I feel that humanity in its evolved state is sort of more destructive and more violent than yes. uh, animals. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, I, I wrote my first book was about violence, you know, serial kills called Blood Scripts, my first academic book. And seriously, you know, things we do, uh, apes want to. Yeah, yeah, I've looked a lot into that. I mean, there is, there has been the theory, of course, that humans are the ones who came up with violence and that the animal kingdom doesn't have any brutality. And that's just clearly false. I mean, I mean, the, the animal kingdom does, but we take it to a level that is unprecedented anywhere in quote nature. No question. I mean, Jane Goodall during her research in the seventies or whenever that was 60s, seventies found that there were bands 
of chimps that would get together and kill rival chimps. And she wanted to sort of hide that information from from the world because she was afraid it would be like, oh, see, violence is inevitable and okay. But I think the idea of some chimps, particularly ones under a lot of pressure because they were in this very limited reserve too. But let's just say that does happen. There, there is some brutality in nature. Our human sophisticated minds, you know, we take it to the point of not like, okay, this is survival and we have limited food source. So maybe we're going to kill off these, you know, these, these, this rival band, not a great thing, but not a common occurrence. Here, what we're doing in the human world is, oh, they think differently. They live on the other side of the planet. They're not taking our resources. Let's still kill them at levels that are and our technology makes that possible. So would, I guess a question would be, and, and, I, and I am on your, your side with this. I do believe humans have that, this unique capacity for violence. But I wonder if, if, if chimps had nuclear bombs, would they use them? <laughs> uh, my answer would be no. And the reason is because I think violence, human violence, is inextricably connected to human freedom. It's not a popular point of view in the sense it sounds like I justify war or genocide. No, I don't. But I remember when I was writing my book about serial killers, I wrote, uh, I read a, a, a biography, an autobiography of a really horrible serial killer who was asked, you know, why did you do it? And he said, because I wanted to be God. And yeah, and so, you know, it wasn't because he had to or needed to or whatever, because he could. And this is the ultimate freedom, right? You do something just because you can. Um, many animals, not chimps, interestingly, but many animals have kind of biological break on violence against their own species. They do kill each other, but, you know, in, in very specific situations. Human beings do have some breaks. Um, but they can be really overridden. So um, our violence is our shame, but also in a way our glory, because we can. Um, so, and it's it's a, you know it's a dark side of human freedom, and you have to deal with it, you have to cope with it. Uh, yeah, and we kill. You know, I wrote the story for you, um, the uh, book, the Jewish book of horror, which, by the way. Congratulations, you know, I think it's such a wonderful collection. But I wrote, uh, you know, about the Holocaust, and the Holocaust was a mess. I mean, there was no reason, even no economic or any other kind of right. um, logical, quote unquote, reason for that. It's just because they didn't consider it choose to be human and they could kill them, so they did. Yes. Yeah, I think you're totally right about that. When natural, when, when creatures, and I do make a distinction between humanity and, and the rest of nature, you can say humans are natural. That, that's kind of a, a tired debate, in my opinion. There's no question that humanity, we've, we've created what people call like the noosphere, noosphere. We're living in this world of ideas, which is separate but dependent on the natural world. So in nature, there's probably an evolutionary adaptation to killing off a band of rivals once in a while, right? There might be something to that. Um, in humanity, for, for the most case, it seems to be mania, ideology to be God, yeah. like you're saying. Yeah. And, and then we're not just killing, 
we're not really even killing for any, oh, I get more food now. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, glory. And then we're ultimately killing our own species. So it's, it's suicidal. Um, but to balance that a little bit, I do have a belief and in, in this, this, I used to always think that the best thing humans could do was devolve back into wolves or whatever, that that's the best thing to do. I do believe that humans do have a unique capacity and potential to say, be custodians. And for example, it's like, all right, when a deer, when there's a, a weak member of the deer herd, they they're not really necessarily helping it. There are some examples of some of that. For the most part, they're like, well, I guess, I guess you're going to die. Us in humanity, we, we take a Stephen Hawking's who might have died in the jungle, in the forest, but became one of the most valuable members of our species because we're like, all right, he's got some physical difficulties here. Let's, let's keep him alive. Let's help him. And then he's going to help us tenfold. So I do think humans can be those that custodian of nature we just choose not to be for the most part and then we create millions of times more violence than has ever existed in anywhere in the quote jungles oh no totally uh again you know let me like position myself i'm not a humanist uh i'm uh, anti-humanist or whatever Nietzsche, <laughs> i suppose but no i think this is a part of human freedom we can be uh, angels and we can be beasts worse than beasts and it's up to us to choose uh i don't think that devolving like the ideal devolution always filled me with horror and that's why i love the time machine because it's a beautifully written book about the horror of losing humanity and yes losing humanity part of losing humanity is that you lose choice so the Eloi and the Morlocks, they have no choice. The Morlocks have to prey on the Eloi because they have to survive. So it's just like wolves and deer, right? A wolf cannot decide to become a vegetarian. Um, Eloi and the Morlocks in, in uh, um, Wales have become animals like this, but we don't have to be. We don't have to destroy our planet. We don't have to kill animals for food anymore if we don't want to. We don't have to kill each other. So we have a choice. And going back to the issue of evolutionary horror, this is why it's horror. The whole idea of devolution is horrible because we lose this capacity for choice. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't mention a couple of my pet theories. I didn't come up with these, but just some of my favorite theories around evolution stuff. So I don't know if you heard of, have you heard of the stoned ape, Terence McKenna, basically? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's basically where common ape ancestor ate mushrooms and that mm -hmm. sort of evolved the consciousness that turned into humans. What, what do you think about that? Any, any chance of that being the case? Uh, it's actually possible. I don't actually accept the theory because there's no scientific proof, but it's possible because the evolution of consciousness, of self-awareness is a total mystery. We know how the human body evolved more or less and you can trace, you know, but for um, 6,000 years, uh, 600,000 years, right? Uh, hominids like ourselves basically did nothing much except, you know, creating stone tools over and over and over again. 
And then, oops, all of a sudden you have this, you know, Neolithic revolution, you have explosion of agriculture, suddenly people start changing. And this is when history starts. And nobody knows why, because there was no biological change. It's not that suddenly, you know, a new kind of uh, hominin emerged with a bigger brain or something. The brain was the same size. So clearly something changed inside the brain as a kind of wiring, mushrooms, I don't know, somebody got hit on the head, you know, a, um, a random mutation, just about anything is possible simply because we don't know. Sure. Well, another one, and this one's even more of my favorite, and I'm, I can't remember the other person's name I'm looking up right now, but uh, so the person who came up with it initially was Alistair Hardy, and there were several books. Oh, yeah. Uh, Elaine Morgan, that's right. So mm -hmm. the aquatic ape theory. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much my favorite topic in all of the world. And no one, no one's really, very few people are aware of it. If you talk about it in anthropology, they immediately look down on you. But for, for folks who aren't familiar, it's basically the idea that, okay, so what Alana was talking about, this, this jump from just kind of scrabbling around to, whoa, there's a huge change here. So mushrooms or other psychedelic substances possible. But the other theory posited, the hypothesis, is that we spent some time semi-aquatic. A certain band of, of hominids got pushed off to the side and were in coastal areas. And our f unique physicality and physiology, as well as other elements of our ways of thinking evolved because we were spending all of this time in the water. And you start comparing some of the weird things that f humans have that no other species except for other aquatic ones, like everything from our nose to just our, our, limit, our hairlessness and just our upright form for potential swimming. It's kind of compelling. What do you think about the aquatic ape hypothesis? I actually do know this theory and I always liked it because it explains another like inexplicable why why don't we have hair on our bodies right well, some uh, of us well, don't some of us yeah, do but well, <laughs> speaking for myself okay but <laughs> but uh we're amazingly hairless compared yes. to um you know not just apes but hominids and hominids so uh it's a beautiful theory it's a story and after all, you know, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but I love stories. And all evolution is about storytelling, ultimately. Because I started by saying that time itself is meaningless, change is meaningless, but we're creatures of meaning. We need to tell stories. We need to give meaning to this shapelessness of time. So I don't know, I don't think there is any like scientific proof of the theory and there are some issues with it, but I love it as a story. I love this idea of a small band of hominins, you know, swimming in, in the lake and that were kind of almost like mermaids. Sort of. yeah, right. So, I, I love it too. I, I want it to be true. I, 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 I totally want it. I love swimming, you know, I love water. So maybe I am a descendant of those. And she has some kind of feminist uh, slant to it because she talks about women, you know, uh, being, um, being a kind of matriarchal maybe society and so on um but yeah I, I just want it to be true it's a great story yeah i encourage folks check it out it's pretty compelling i guarantee you even the toughest skeptic will come across a few points and be like well 
it's not explained. The thing is, because we don't really know any of these things. We don't have a great explanation of what the, the shift was. So maybe it was apes on mushrooms swimming around. Like, we don't know. Like it, but I, I've always thought I'd like to write a horror novel or story about aquatic ape theory, but it's but scary. And it probably was, because now all of a sudden you have to deal with sharks and stuff like that. So. Oh, no. Uh, and the whole idea, you know, there is a lot of horror dealing with uh, mermen and mermaids. Right. And it is horror. Like, I just finished reading an Icelandic fantasy novel, which is, like, fabulous, called Shadows of Short Days. And it has a whole race of aquatic um, hominids, you know, living in Iceland of all places. But, um, so, yeah, I, I think you should just write a novel about that. I might. I, I like one of my pet peeves is sexy mermaids because I mean, I, I like attractive women, humans, but the idea that, all right, if there were these fish creatures, they're, they're in the ocean all the time. They're fighting. Cre they're not going to be hot. Like, sorry, but they're not going to be hot. I don't like that. They're going to be monstrous. I I actually wrote like stories sort of about uh, um, mermaids, and they're definitely uh, monstrous. Good. And That's there is good. no biological way in which you have this, you know, sexy mermaid sitting on a stone, like combing her hair. This is <laughs> even as a child, I always thought it was totally ridiculous. Yeah, well, I'm glad we're on the same page with that. That's definitely a, an issue I feel very strongly about. I might have to do a whole <laughs> a whole episode just on mer mer people and how they're not you're not going to want to sleep with with a mermaid but that's the thing they're the sailors are out at sea and they're hallucinating so that that i can that's, get at least i can understand but it would even be biologically impossible without <laughs> getting into you know uh, being too graphic you can't even imagine yeah i mean you're you're at sea long enough i guess i can understand that but to to sort of wrap things up here so some of the things that I've been hearing recently in the world and, and through my research. So in terms of evolution, so are, are we still evolving? And it seems, so one of the things that I read recently, which I thought really summed it up well, is we have Stone Age emotions in medieval institutions and then godlike technology. And are we going to catch up, do you think, Ilana, with our technology or is that going to be our our end no we will catch up okay i really truly believe in it not because i'm a utopian i despise utopians it's because i believe in evolution you know it's not it's think about how many a lot of species died out obviously but if you think about us you know hominins hominids we've had this amazing you know evolutionary leap and i think we're going to to evolve and we're still evolving that's evolution is not going anywhere you know it's still happening right now um and we have like technologies right technology just crispr which i'm very much in favor of i don't think it's you know it's anything to be afraid of um, so we'll catch up. Now, we're not going to get into any utopia of peace, love, and understanding, but it's going to be different. The future is going to be different from the past. 
and that's the only thing I'm looking forward to. I'm not looking to paradise of health, you know, I'm not a believer. I'm just looking for something different and it will be different. Evolution is happening. And this is why horror is so great because it allows you to explore differences, you know, what is not like us. And in order to understand where we're going or where we want to go, we also have to understand where we don't want to go. Yeah. And again, so horror slash dark sci-fi, which is my favorite genre, explores all those roads that we might take, but probably shouldn't take, and the roads we might have taken in the past and maybe shouldn't have taken. So yeah, evolution is happening. All kinds of wonderful things are going to happen. Wonderful, not in the sense of good, but wonderful in the literal meaning of filled with wonder. Well, it seems like you're actually a bit of an optimist then, in in some ways even maybe more so than me. But the way I have take solace in things is, so the idea which could be horrific, we're not special, uh, we're not eternal. That could be a horrible thing. Oh, our little thing, we want to keep it going forever. In another way, and if you look at it, say, in the Taoist perspective, that's that's not bad. It's the fact that we're a part of everything means it's all okay like we don't have to grasp to the oh we are my, my genetics which get you know diluted you know you, mm -hmm. you mate with four people or you know whatever each successive generation your genes are barely there anyway uh so why not just let go and be okay with that that embrace of time so time's either swallowing us or we're actually just joining with it and that's another way of looking at it right no, totally. I'm not saying that humanity will exist forever. Absolutely not. Uh, nothing exists forever. I'm just saying we're not going like to die tomorrow. You know, right. history is going on and there will be all kinds of interesting things happening. And I wish I could live longer just to see what was going to happen. And eventually the sun will explode and we will all disappear, whatever. But that's okay. This is time. This is what time is all about. This is what human freedom is all about. We have this short period of time. Let's just have fun. Let's enjoy it. As for like my, you know, kids, I mean, I have children, but I didn't have children in order to, to you know, make myself immortal in some way, just because I had fun. Sure. And our ideas can also last. They, they can be our our children as well. So speaking of which, what are you working on now and where can folks find your work? Okay, so I have a website, which, you know, uh, you can, uh, I think I sent it to you, so if you can put it in. Uh, um, and what I'm working on now actually is uh, a novel ev evolutionary horror. I put it aside for a while because I was working on something else and the fantasy novel which came out recently, it's called Black House. But um, so I wrote a like a real traditional fantasy novel, which I never expected to write. But now I'm working on an evolutionary horror novel, which is an extension of a story I wrote some time ago called Eye in the Water. And it will be about an invasion of evolutionary time. So time itself will become what we talked about, time becoming a monster. So literally there will be an invasion of a different evolutionary time into our history and different historical timelines colliding. And there will be lots of monsters because I love monsters. This is all I want to write about is like different kinds of monsters. 
So um, it's provisionally called checkpoint, you know, like a checkpoint in time. Uh, and I hope to finish it, you know, this year. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And thank you so much for coming into my nightmare. <laughs> thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And um, it was great sharing your nightmare. Thank great. you so much. Thanks for taking a trip with me through Josh's Worst Nightmare, where I, Josh Schlossberg, survey the dark landscape of biological horror fiction presented by Denver Horror Collective. If you don't want to miss any of the great, and sometimes disturbing, weekly episodes I've got planned for you, be sure to subscribe to Josh's Worst Nightmare on a variety of podcast platforms. You can also sign up for Josh's Worst Nightmare e-newsletter at joshsworstnightmare.com where I share a whole squirming mess of bio-horror, including my infamous haiku horror reviews and my latest dark scribblings. Speaking of which, if you haven't already picked up a copy of my cosmic biological folk horror novella, Moline, from D&T Publishing, you can find a copy of the paperback hardcover, or ebook at Amazon, Godless.com, or Josh'sWorstNightmare.com. Yours darkly, Josh Schlossberg. <laughs> <laughs>